Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Worship time. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Not Luke, but Matthew. We'll eventually get back to Luke in a few weeks. But I felt like we needed to do one more sermon related to Christmas because it is actually the day after Christmas. Jim and Della were a young couple. They were barely making ends meet. They were living in a small apartment. And it was Christmas time. And they both wanted to give each other a very special gift. But because funds were tight, they didn't know exactly what they were going to do. Della had beautiful, long, flowing hair. It was her pride and joy. It was her husband's pride and joy. Her long, flowing hair. Jim... Her husband owned a shiny watch, a watch that was handed down to him by his father who handed it down to him from his father, so it was his prized possession. So Della's long hair and Jim's heirloom watch. So it's Christmas Eve, and Della only had $2 to her name, so she was desperate to find a gift. And so she goes to a hair salon, and she has her hair cut and sells her hair for $20 to a hairdresser so that she could go buy a nice gift for Jim, a chain for his watch. So she comes home, and her long flowing hair is cut, and she's so excited to begin cooking dinner on Christmas Eve. So Jim walks in and sees that his wife's hair has been cut, a little bit shocked. You cut your hair. What's going on? He freaks out because the money that he, the little bit of money he had for Christmas, he went and bought all these hair accessories for her hair, thinking that this would be wonderful because she had this long flowing hair. And so here's the plot twist. Basically, she comes to him and says, I sold my hair to buy a chain for your watch. And he said, I sold my watch to buy these hair accessories for your hair. And so this is a wonderful Christmas story that shows how this husband and wife made huge sacrifices for one another at Christmas time. Now, you've probably heard this story before. Maybe in high school you read it. This is O. Henry's famous short story called The Gift of the Magi. You can go back and read the story. And at the end of the story, the narrator compares this young couple's generosity in giving gifts to each other to the Magi that gave gifts to the Christ child. The gift of the Magi. Now, let's just ask a question. Just who were these Magi? These wise men from the East. Trivia question. Were there three of them? We don't know. Were they astrologers? Where did they come from? 
Well, this is an amazing story that's recorded in Matthew's Gospel, and we find the visit of the wise men, or the magi, from the east. So let's read Luke's account. It's only found in Luke's Gospel, Matthew chapter 12. I mean, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men. Now, your, your Bible may say magi. Wise men, magi. From the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that had, they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is a story of contrasts between the Magi and King Herod. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Let every heart prepare him room. That's a question for you this morning. Here's the question today. How will you receive Jesus as your king this Christmas season? I just have a quick question. Are the lights all the way up? There, that's better. Can you guys see now? I can see. How will you receive Jesus as king this Christmas. So what I want us to do this morning, just in our time together, is I want us to briefly look at the diametrical opposing contrasts, if you will, between the wise men, the Magi, and King Herod. So there's a huge contrast between these two, two groups. So three major contrasts between the Magi, the wise men, and Herod. So here's contrast number one. Contrast number one. The Magi were pagan Gentiles, while Herod was, quote-unquote, the king of the Jews. Now, let's just think about this. When was Jesus born? You may say he was born on A.D. 0, December 25th, right? Probably not. Actually, the traditional birth for Jesus has been between 4 and 5 B.C., and not in December, but probably in April. 
And most scholars believe that Jesus may have been probably around two years old at the time that the Magi, because it says they lived in a house, not necessarily, they're no longer in the manger there. So when you see the nativity scenes and you have the shepherds and the angels and the wise men, it makes a very nice nativity scene, but it's probably not chronologically accurate. It's probably maybe a year or a year and a half later from when Jesus is born when these wise men come to, 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 to Bethlehem. But verse 1 tells us that these wise men come from the east. It just says they come from the east. So who were these guys? Well, the text doesn't tell us they were kings. We three kings of Orient are. It doesn't say they're kings. It doesn't say there were three of them. All we know were there were three gifts, and so traditionally it's been thought that this has led to believe there were three wise men. According to scholars, these men were either astrologers or a special class of sorcerers or pagans who could interpret dreams, and they were probably from Persia or Babylon, modern-day Iran and Iraq. But here's the bottom line. Regardless of where they're from and who they were, here's the thing you need to know. They're not Jews. They're not Israelites. They're pagans coming from a foreign land to see Jesus. It's just like God to save those that are the least likely to be saved. Isaiah 60, verse 3. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. It's talking about Israel being a, being a, a light to the nations and how Jesus would come from Israel. Now, it's very interesting that God has a heart for the nations here right from the very beginning these wise men from the east, these magi. It reminds us how important missions is. As a church, we're still taking the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Lottie Moon was a missionary to China back in the 1800s. Our goal as a church is $5,000. We're pretty close to that goal. But every cent that you give to the missions offering goes directly to the foreign mission field so that missionaries, about 4,000 missionaries around the world, can get their salary paid, can get their health benefits, can, can, can get all of their stuff paid for so they can do ministry. And so we have a close relationship with a lot of missionaries that rely upon the support of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. So we're still taking that. But one of the things I want you to see here is that God is a missionary God. Wise men, astrologers, pagans from the east, God draws to Bethlehem, to Jesus. Now think about our world. I've shared the statistics with you before. There are probably not millions, but close to a billion people in our world today who've never heard the name of Jesus. They're living in closed countries, unreached people groups. They don't have a Bible in their language. They don't have a church. They don't have a missionary. And so there are people today that are living without access to the gospel. And so God is a missionary God. And so how does God get the message? Now, with the wise man, God got the message through a star. You wish it would be that easy today. We wouldn't have to send missionaries if God just sent stars. 
Okay? We wouldn't need any missionaries. God would just send stars and then people would come and believe in Jesus. But God has ordained for us today to have missionaries sent into these unreached people groups. So how are they going to get saved? Paul says it this way in Romans 10, 13-15. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, It's a wonderful promise. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But here's a question. What happens if they never heard? Okay, how will they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how are you going to call if you've never heard? And how are you going to ever hear if somebody doesn't tell you? And how is is anybody going to tell you if somebody's not sent? The point is, the gospel needs to get to these unreached people groups. Carl Henry said it this way, The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. If it gets there in time. Now, back to the Magi. They follow the star from the east to come worship the king of the Jews. Now, what are we to make of this famous star? What type of astronomical phenomenon was this star that just showed up in the east? Now, Kepler, the famous scientist, he basically pointed out that in 7 BC there was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn and the constellation Pisces that caused this star to happen. That has since been debunked. That's not actually what happened. Some people think it was a supernova. Some people think it was maybe Halley's Comet that just showed up and moved across the the earth. Here's the point. Matthew's not a scientist. He's a tax collector. His burden is not to give us the scientific information of what the star is. The point is, it's a miracle. No matter how you slice it, it's a miracle. God sovereignly had the star show up at that point in time, at that point in history, and moved across the earth, moved across the sky to to, to line up right above where Jesus was. Isaiah 40, 25-26, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes high and see. Who created these? Okay, God says, look up and see who created these stars who brings out their hosts by name, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he's strong in power and not one is missing. We looked at this last week. Not one star is missing. God sovereignly put that star there. But let's ask the question, why a star? Of all things, why a star? You go back to the book of Numbers, and it was prophesied, that a star would rise out of Israel and be king. A star. Numbers 24, 17. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Talking about Jesus, this star that would come out of Israel, that would rule He would be king of the Jews. He would come out of the lineage of David. In other words, the star in the sky is a prophecy of Jesus being the star. And then what did Jesus say about himself in John 8, 12? Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So God sovereignly draws these pagan Gentiles who had no clue who Jesus was by sending a star in the sky to draw them to Jesus. Pagan, outsiders from an unreached people group, it shows from the very beginning that God's a missionary God that has a heart for the nations, not just Israel, but a heart for all the nations, and to bring the nations to Jesus. But let's contrast that to Herod. Is Herod a Gentile outsider? Is Herod a pagan? No, who is Herod? He's the king of the Jews. Now, obviously, this is the time of the Roman Empire, and Caesar Augustus was the true king, but he allowed Herod to kind of be a puppet king of of the, of the area there. And Herod was a cruel dictator. He really was. He laid oppressive taxes on his people. He forced his own people to become slaves, to work on construction projects. And so God announces the birth to shepherds who are considered not very faithful people. And then he brings pagan Gentiles from the east to worship Jesus. And here you have Herod, who is the supposed king of the Jews, who's totally clueless about this. He's a Jew and yet he doesn't know what's going on. So that's contrast number one. Here's contrast number two. The Magi were drawn to Jesus while Herod was clueless and apathetic toward Jesus. The Magi were drawn to Jesus while Herod was clueless and apathetic towards Jesus. Now, we don't know if the Magi had any formal Old Testament training. The Bible doesn't tell us, but probably not. Did these Magi know their Old Testament? Did they know the book of Isaiah? Did they know the book of of Hosea? Did they know the book of Micah? Did they know all these Old Testament prophecies? Probably not. They're they're astrologers from a far-off country. They probably did not have the Old Testament Scriptures. But God is sovereignly drawing them to worship Jesus. Now, who should have known the Old Testament Scriptures? Who was raised reading the Old Testament? Who grew up in the synagogue? Herod. Herod should have known this. And he is clueless and apathetic. Notice what he says. He doesn't even know his history. Look at verse 4. When they come to him and says, we heard about this king, he's troubled. Verse 4, assembling all the chief priests and scribes, he inquired of them, where's the Christ to be born? That's a dumb question if you grew up in Israel, going to the synagogues. His religious leaders had to tell him in Bethlehem of Judea. And they quote the prophet Micah. He has no clue that the Old Testament prophesies that Bethlehem is going to be the birth of the Messiah. He's so clueless, he has to bring in his religious leaders and ask, where's where's this supposed to happen? I don't know my Old Testament. What's the implication of this? The implication is this. You can grow up around the church. You can grow up in a Christian family. You can grow up around the Bible and have head knowledge about who Jesus is, but never truly trust Him as your Lord and Savior and have a heart change. doesn't necessarily mean that you're truly saved. Now, the, the quote here is from Micah. 
Verse 6 is a direct quote from Micah. And so, growing up in the synagogues, every Jewish person at this time would have known that this Messiah, this shepherd, this king, this future king, this future coming shepherd, king, ruler, would come from Bethlehem, if they just knew their Old Testament. Micah chapter 5, 2-5. through five. But you, O Bethlehem, Apathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who's to be ruler in Israel. There it is. It's going to come from Bethlehem. Whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock and the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. Herod's like, I didn't know this. I never read this. I grew up going to synagogue my whole life. I grew up, quote unquote, the king of the Jews. I never heard this before, that the, the ruler's going to come from Bethlehem. He's going he's to be a shepherd, king. And so this king that's going to come from Bethlehem is going to be a good shepherd, as opposed to Herod, who's a bad shepherd. John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so Herod is ruling as a dictator. Jesus will come and shepherd his people with compassion and gentleness and with love and compassion. And it says there in that passage, he will be their peace. Jesus will be the peace, the Prince of Peace. Ephesians 2, 13-14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Okay, Jesus is going to come from Bethlehem to rule as king. Christmas time, we have little nostalgic thoughts of the little baby Jesus in the manger. I'm not trying to be disrespectful here, but some people have the cute Ricky Bobby Talladega Nights baby Jesus thought in their minds. The little baby Jesus. And yes, Jesus was born as a baby. And yes, we celebrate his birth. But can I remind you of something? Jesus grew up. He died on a cross. He rose again. He's in heaven now. And he's coming back. And how is he going to come back? On the white horse. Revelation 19, 11 through 15. Do you have this view of Jesus at Christmas time? Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. That just means crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule rule them with a rod of iron he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God almighty is that the picture of Jesus you have the coming king who's going to bring justice and bring the end of the world the prince of peace yes but also the ruling king so Herod has no clue 
Now the Magi were drawn to this Jesus. The, the Magi were, were, were captivated by this, this king of the Jews. Herod was clueless. He was apathetic. Not only was he clueless and apathetic, but here's contrast number three. The Magi worshipped Jesus with great joy, but Herod was threatened by Jesus with great distress. The Magi worshipped with great joy, but Herod was threatened by Jesus with great distress. Okay. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped. They experienced great joy joy when they finally found out where Jesus was. And they walked in the house and they see the Christ child and they see Mary and they bow down and they worship with great joy. These pagan Gentiles who had no clue were drawn by a star and they come into a family they had no clue who they, who they were. They just knew that this was the Messiah and so they bow down and they worship Jesus. And they give three gifts. Now, we really don't know what the symbolism is in these three gifts. Obviously, gold represents royalty, only fit for a king. A frankincense is kind of a glittery, odorous, gummy type stuff that's from the bark of trees. And then myrrh was found as a spice used for embalming. These are probably customary gifts that were given to royalty. And so here's the thing that's very interesting. These three men, if there are three of them, or these three gifts, these pagan Gentile outsiders are worshiping Jesus as king. Now, was he their king? Well, these guys are from Persia or from Babylon. They have a different king. But yet, somehow they understand, sovereignly by God's choosing, that the Christ child is the king of kings. They knew it. They bowed down. They worshiped. They gave him gifts. They had great joy. Far off, had no clue, but in the presence of Jesus, they bowed down, worshiped with great joy. Now, how does Herod respond? Is Herod jubilant and rejoicing? I'm excited that Jesus is born. What does it say in verse 3? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. That's kind of a, 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 a very um, weak, probably a weak translation. What the word really means in the original language is this. He's terrified into paranoia. He's terrified into paranoia. He's paranoid. He's terrified. He's threatened. There's going to be a king that's going to come take my throne, and I'm paranoid. Now, history teaches us that Herod murdered one of his wives and two sons. He was known for being a paranoid murderer. So the announcement of Jesus does not bring joy to Herod. It brings a threat. It brings paranoia. It brings terror. He's panicked. And so he comes up with the plan. Let's keep reading. What's Herod's diabolical plan? Because what happens to the wise men? 
the Magi. The Lord sovereignly warns them in a dream not to go back and tell Herod. So they, they, they head on back to Persia or Babylon under God's sovereign plan. Let's pick up in verse 13. Now when they had departed, that's the wise men, the Magi. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise man. Genocide. Infanticide. A paranoid murderer. So he's threatened. He's paranoid. He is a murderer. Now, you're probably not threatened or terrified or paranoid about Jesus. But let's think of it this way. Herod's the king, and he makes the rules. Herod's the one in charge. Herod lives life the way he wants to live life. And there's somebody that's coming to threaten that kingship, that lordship. So what's the implication for us? We often want to be the king of our life. We want to call the shots. We want to live the way we want to live. And when someone comes and says, I'm going to threaten your little world, your security, your idolatries, and that person's name is Jesus as Lord, Jesus King, when he comes and threatens that and says, I'm the Lord, you must submit to me and live for me, and it's all about my glory, then we get threatened. So when Jesus comes to you as king, it can either do one of two things. You can bow to him in joy like the wise men did because he's your Lord. Or you can be threatened and paranoid and say, back off, Jesus, like Herod did. Because Jesus comes as king to tell you to die to yourself. Give up all rights. Surrender to him. Luke 9, 23 through 25. This is Jesus. He said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? When Jesus as king comes to you and says, I'm the Lord, I'm the king, I call the shots. I'm the one in charge. Do you joyfully bow down to Jesus and say, absolutely, Jesus, you're my Lord. I'll follow you wherever you go. I'll give up all rights. I'll, I'll deny myself daily and take up my cross. Or are you like Herod where you say, no, no, thank you, Jesus. That threatens me. That makes me uncomfortable. Don't you dare come close and have rights over my life. I'm the king. I'm the one in charge. This passage of Scripture shows us from the very beginning that Jesus would be treated with hostility, resentment, and persecution. It starts right here. So much so that they had to flee to go to Egypt. So from the very beginning, 
men have wanted to kill Jesus. The king wanted to kill Jesus from the very beginning. And, and his entire life was one of men wanting to kill him. The Pharisees plotting. The scribes plotting. And eventually it happened. In essence, Jesus was born so that he could suffer and die. But I want you to notice what Jesus is called here. Verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? King of the Jews. Jesus is called king of the Jews here in the beginning of his life. The only other place this is given to Jesus is when? At his crucifixion. The sign above his head that says king of the Jews. Matthew 27, 37. Over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. He was born the king of the Jews, and he died the king of the Jews. And every time in between, people were threatening Jesus' life. But here's where God's sovereignty comes into play. When Jesus is an infant, God sovereignly spares Jesus' life by giving Joseph a dream and they escape to Egypt. God intervenes and says, it's not time. It's not time for Jesus' death. No matter how hard Herod wanted to kill Jesus, it was not God's sovereign timetable. God protected, God spared Jesus. They went to Egypt. 33 years later, the father did not spare Jesus' life. The father did not intervene. The father did not stop the assault. Instead, Jesus went to the cross. God did not spare his one and only son, but gave him up for us all as king of the Jews to suffer. What Isaiah 53, 4-7 says, Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened, not his mouth. In the O. Henry story of Jim and Della, the gift of the Magi, they gave each other a sacrifice. Della sacrificed her hair and Jim sacrificed his watch because they loved each other so much. And in our text here, the Magi, who were drawn from a foreign land, came and, and worshipped Jesus as the king with great joy. And so everybody gives gifts at Christmas. The Magi gave gifts. Jim and Della gave gifts. You probably exchanged gifts over the past couple of days. But what if I were to tell you the greatest gift is the gift that God gave when he gave his only son. I read it earlier, 1 John 4.10. And this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loved us first. God did not wait for us to get our act together before he sent Jesus. God did not look down and say, I wish those humans would just clean up their act. And then eventually I'll I'll, I'll deal with them. No, God took the initiative. God took the initiative. God sent Jesus. Jesus went willingly. God gave his only son to be the propitiation, to, to take the wrath, to take the justice, to take the penalty that we deserved in our place. God spared no expense in giving Jesus, his one and only son. When Jesus was a baby, God spared him death in Egypt. Hanging on the cross, God did not spare Jesus. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? At the cross, God did not spare his son, but he gave him up that we might receive all things, all the blessings of salvation. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his what? Love. Are you in wonder of his love? Are you in wonder of his love? It's kind of a trite thing. God is love. God loves us. God sent his son. We we say this all the time as Christians. And it should never get old. We We should never get over the fact that God so loved us that he sent Jesus. Are you in wonder of his love? Are you like the Magi that were drawn by the Father to bow down and worship the King of kings with great joy? Does Jesus bring you the greatest joy? Or does Jesus threaten your security? Do you love Jesus being your Lord? Or do you balk and resent Jesus being your Lord? Do you willingly bow before him as king? Or do you say, Jesus, don't intrude into my life. I'm the king. May this Christmas be a season where your heart has prepared him realm. Let earth receive her king. May we be in wonder of his love. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. I'm so thankful that this account is in our Bible. Because you very easily could have dealt with the nation of Israel, and you could have dealt with shepherds that were in Israel, and it could have been very localized to Israel, to just the Jewish people. But Lord, from the very beginning, even all the way back to what you promised Abraham in Genesis 12, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through you, you reached out sovereignly to some pagan astrologers and brought them to worship Jesus. And Lord, that gives us great hope because I don't think many of us in this room are Jewish. 
You, you brought us to yourself as those that were pagan outsiders. That we would bow down and worship Jesus just like the Magi. So Lord, this Christmas season and as we move into the new year, would we have the heart of the Magi? Joyful, worshipful, bowing down to you, Jesus as King, and not have the attitude of Herod, threatened, paranoid, balking, despising that you're our king, wanting to be the king and rule our own lives. Will we submit to you, Jesus, as our king? So Lord, help us in our hearts receive you as king and help us to always be in wonder of your love. Thank you, Father, that you did not spare Jesus on the cross that you gave him up for us all. That we might have forgiveness, we might have eternal life, we might have all the blessings that come from our salvation. So Lord, as we close out this Christmas season, we want to say we love you, Jesus. We honor you. We praise you. We submit to you. You are our King. And it's in your name that we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.